Thank you for downloading this podcast presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Center. This year's annual African Studies lecture features two scholars, Professors Achille Mbembe and Sarah Nuttall, both of the Stellenbosch University in South Africa. The following presentation is from Professor Achille Mbembe and is entitled Collision, Collusion, and Refractions, Reflections on South Africa After Liberation. Sarah asked me whether she, she should take this off, and I, I told her, no, don't take it off. It shows that, indeed, surfaces have teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I would like to thank uh, the, the Center of African Studies here, and uh, especially uh, its director, David, for, for inviting, uh, inviting me here. Uh, I, I, was, I was trained somewhere else. I've been uh, uh, so Oxford is... Uh, I heard about Oxford, but I, I, I was trained uh, in some other, other temple. Uh, I, I would also like to thank Eleka, uh, who is a very dear friend, uh, for her kind introduction. Uh, I'm happy to see here faces of old friends and, and colleagues uh, who have taught us a lot. Uh, Robert is here, William, uh, James Carey is here, uh, and, and a few others. Um, and, and since I'm here at Oxford, I, I would like to, uh, and since the lecture is to be delivered in English, I, I have to apologize for the uh, infelicities of, of my, my, my English. Uh, after so many years in the Anglo uh, world, I, I still cannot write in English. Uh, and many of the words I use are the figures of... Uh, of thought, style of argumentation, uh, still uh, uh, depend a lot on uh, some other language. Uh, the, the, um, <clears throat> what I would like to share with you this evening is a set of uh, incomplete thoughts on the, uh, the broad theme of South Africa, South Africa as an idea. Uh, it, is, it is a project I, I hope to, to complete uh, in, in the near future. It is a project, the aim of which is to reflect critically uh, and historically on uh, two categories, it seems to me, that have uh, structured South African political history. On the one hand, the category of life, and on the other hand, the category of possibility. And it seems to me that these two categories are uh, at the center of uh, current discussions in South Africa about the future of democracy uh, in this part of the world. Now let me start by saying that uh, not everything that could be said has been said about democracy. Democracy is a term that has uh, historically spoken to two things. First of all, to the project of self-legislation, and second, to the modes of realization of uh, human freedom attained through shared rule of the polity. And if there is a 
a basic definition, we can agree that what democracy is, it seems to me, it is, it is there. Now, it happens that during the last quarter of the 20th century and the early years of the 21st, we have witnessed a renewed critique of this political form and a re-examination of its potentialities and limits. And such a critique whose primary aim was to link uh, left theory with political practice has been part of a an ongoing effort to reverse what many perceive as the uh, depoliticizing and de-democratizing tendencies of late capitalism. It is uh, significant, at least for the purpose of uh, tonight's presentation, that this new critique has, in most instances, taken the form of witnessing. <laughs> now, one might ask, but what is it to witness? I think to witness, at least in this case, is an attempt to disrupt and destabilize the present order of things. The task of the witness is to testify about life, life itself understood as a relentlessly regenerative force. In any case, that is uh, the ways in which witnessing has been understood, for instance, in uh, what for me is the best of black thought. Uh, in Fanon, uh, whom Leka referred to, in Paul Gilroy, uh, and in, in many others. So through thought and practice, Praxis, the witness strives to keep open the possibility of writing anew the future itself as another name for the human. In this sense, witnessing is predicated on the two categories of hope and promise, the promise of uh, justice and the hope that against or in spite of uh, the structured blindness and collective self-deception of the age, a systemic transformation in the logic of our social life, in the logic of our being in common as human beings, might happen. It seems to me that that is the ways in which witnessing as a political act, as well as a, a mode of critique, is the way in which it has operated, at least in, in black thought. But one could say the same for uh, certain traditions of Jewish thought. And we see this form of critique being applied today when it comes to the, uh, the question of democracy. Now, four interrelated facets of this renewed critique are worth highlighting, and I would like to to go through each of them briefly. The first relates to the alleged loss of democracy's power to signify. According to this argument, liberal political principles of liberty, equality, uh, the rule of law, uh, civil liberty, individual autonomy, and universal inclusion 
These principles have been overtaken by neoliberal rationality and its criteria of uh, profitability and efficiency. And as a result of the colonization of everyday life by market relations, the worship of wealth and a mode of production that depends on the destruction of the natural foundations of life, we are told uh, our work, uh, our needs, uh, desires, thought, fantasies, and self-images have been captured by capital. And an impoverished conception of democracy as the right to consume has triumphed, making it difficult to envisage a different economy, different social relations, modes of production, ends and needs, and ways of life. And this, in turn, has reignited debates about whether uh, humans do indeed want the responsibility of offering their own lives and whether they can be expected to, as Wendy Brown puts it, and I quote her, actively pursue their own substantive freedom and equality, let alone that of others. These are debates that are, have been reignited. They are not new. In, for those of you who are familiar with the works uh, uh, produced, especially in the aftermath of the, the Second World War, uh, Eric Fromm and others, uh, these questions was already raised. Uh, uh, where these questions were already raised then, questions about uh, the eagerness with uh, which the epoch then uh, seemed to surrender freedom, uh, seemed to be uh, seeking ways of escaping from its uh, from from freedom. Debates about whether uh, the serious threat uh, to democracy uh, wasn't, after all, the existence within our own institutions of of conditions which have given a victory to uh, indifference, uh, to the longing for submission to internalized authorities, and so forth and so on. So uh, these debates are not new, but they have been reignited uh, in the uh, light of uh, first observation I have made. On the other hand, the uh, alliance between technology, capital, and militarism with the aim of uh, achieving what the late French critic André Gortz uh, called ectogenesis, all of this has been radicalized. And uh, in the mind of uh, André Gortz, the term ectogenesis stood for the attempt to industrialize the reproduction of humans in the same way as uh, biotechnology is industrializing the reproduction of animal and plant species. And this project of abolition of nature uh, at least in the eyes of gods, required the abolition of politics and its replacement by market re regulation. It was uh, driven by capital's project of, to transform life itself into a commodity. And therefore we are told that the, the biggest threat to politics, to the political and to democracy, lies precisely in the drive to 
by capital to transform life itself into a commodity. So that's the first facet of this renewed critique of, of democracy. The second kind of critique deals with uh, what, in the aftermath of 9-11, what democracies have done with the double equation, security, liberty. Or, to put it differently, the relationship between law and lawlessness. This double structure is inscribed in, for instance, contemporary logics of state and non-state violence and terror. But it also corresponds to new forms of governance, including at a planetary level. As we witness a tremendous increase in legal regulation, including what many uh, call the juridicization of politics, we are also seeing a proliferation of spaces of lawlessness. And in fact, law and lawlessness uh, perfectly not only coexist, but relay each other, disorder going hand in hand with a maximum of legislation, but a legislation whose aim is, as Etienne Balibar puts it, to deprive certain categories of the population of any rights to have rights at all. So to a certain extent, uh, we are in a post-Benjaminian era when it comes to a critique of both violence and law and lawlessness. As you remember, Benjamin's question was whether violence pertained to an order outside the law. He wanted to articulate a critique of violence on its own terms, that is, as pure means beyond the normative considerations that would be applied to its ends. And in his views, violence reaffirmed the law and the law reaffirmed violence. In other words, law was based on a disavowed violence which haunted its foundations. And a number of critics are uh, applying this Benjaminian critique to, uh, not only to law, but to democracy. That, that with the idea that maybe, in fact, uh, uh, democracy as such uh, might be, uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, be based on a disavowed violence which haunts its very foundations. Now, uh, and this is the third uh, facet of the critique, far from being an entirely empty signifier, the simple claim that the people should rule themselves has, in parts of the global south, reconfigured democracy as an eminent act of revolt, rebellion, and even insurrection. We have seen it recently in, in North Africa, uh, still in unfolding. In those regions of the world where large groups of superfluous young men and women have been structurally, if not programmatically excluded from economic activity, and where the deaths of social suffering are abyssal, the idea of a democracy to come has triggered 
new vernacular languages of resistance and reignited forms of militancy and mobilization that take the ordinary and the everyday as their point of departure. And here, the critique of democracy takes a slightly different turn. <laughs> it is about what freedom might possibly mean in the face of the brutal realities of mass poverty and homelessness, hunger, joblessness, and disease. Indeed, what can democracy possibly mean when, in spite of the advent of various freedoms, daily life has not been transfigured, but has rather gained in triviality and harshness, while poverty tends to overwhelm and crush the life of uh, uh, many? Uh, this is uh, a question we are facing, for instance, in, in South Africa, or uh, for that matter, in other parts of the continent. Such an interrogation carries an even greater weight in a context in which human beings are deemed to exist only in and through what they possess or what they can pay. Yet, a mass of people are deprived of any objective rights over uh, objects of uh, social importance uh, or objects which are basic for their life sustenance. And since within contemporary parameters of wealth and power, people tend to enter the complex network of human relations primarily by means of objects, and human beings eminently tend to exist through what they possess, those who have nothing find themselves in a situation in which non-possession signifies a lack of dignity or even uh, more uh, uh, importantly, the quasi-impossibility of any recognition or meaningful human relation, be it marriage, friendship, so forth and so on. So the threat of poverty represents for democracy in a market society is, uh, lies in the fact that poverty robs many of their freedom and their dignity. That the needs and desires of those who have nothing or not much risk ending up having their foundation in biological life and instincts. Is the risk that these biological realities might never be transformed into freedoms rather than giving these biological content a human form life in poverty maintains them in the realm of necessity and as a result uh, the right of the poor to live in dignity becomes precarious since poor people spend their lives struggling to to stay alive and uh, it's a predicament we are facing very squarely in, uh, uh, in South Africa. So the question is how to rescue needs from the realm of blind necessity. Uh, it is one of the major challenges of the democratic project in these regions of the world. The fourth kind of critique, and this, uh, the third kind which I have just outlined, is, is a kind you find in the works of the likes of Arjuna Padurai, in his work, Deep Democracy, which deals basically with uh, 
uh, uh, say, uh, poverty and homelessness in major cities such as Bombay, but one can also find it in tangentially, at least in Amartya Sen and a uh, whole uh, group of people who, who have been uh, applying their minds to, to, to the relationship between poverty and, and democracy. Let me move quickly to the fourth kind of critique. It is a kind that has been preoccupied with the difficult question of what remains of the human in an age of uh, violence and terror, state secrecy and torture, permanent and declared wars, and uh, renewed forms of race thinking. The drive to reimagine democracy as a community of life within an expanded definition of the human uh, is not surprising. Late 20th century and early 21st century critique of democracy has coincided with our disjointed world experiencing a radical uncertainty. This sense of uncertainty particularly affects, I think, three domains of social life. First is the nature and conditions of emancipatory praxis. Under what conditions is it that we can re-engineer, and here I'm talking from South Africa, uh, uh, a political praxis that is liberatory precisely after liberation, because liberation has not foreclosed the need for, for emancipation. Second, the categorical foundations of, of difference and personhood, uh, questions of race, and third, moral economies of signification, in the sense that we have no longer, we no longer have ready-made answers, if we have ever had, to such fundamental questions as, uh, who, who am I? Uh, who, who is it that I am? And how do I know that I, I, I am I? Uh, or, or even more, more, more seriously, that for instance, Eleka, Eleka is Eleka, or Robert is Robert. Uh, uh, questions around the veil, uh, have to unveil people in order to, 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 to put our finger on, on who they are, because we don't know any longer who is whom, uh, and so forth and so on. The uh, questions such as, who is my neighbor? Uh, what should we do with our former enemies? Uh, typical South African question. How should we treat the migrant, the asylum seeker, the stranger or the prisoner, the widow and the orphan? Uh, can we forgive the unforgivable? What is the relationship between the quality of persons on the one hand and material wealth, poverty, hunger and disease on the other? Uh, more importantly, uh, is there anything that can be considered to be so priceless as to be immune from sacrifice? And if the possibilities of utopian thinking have receded, what are the conditions of uh, radical future-oriented politics in this world and in these times? We do not have answers to these questions. And uh, the fact of not having answers to these questions or formulating them in a way that makes sense, contributes to this sense of uh, radical uncertainty. Now, for several reasons, 
Africa in general and South Africa in particular are revealing sites from which to reframe these renewed interrogations of democracy and the human, of life and of possibility. And some of these reasons are historical. Here indeed, under conditions of uh, slavery or varying degrees of colonial apartheid dispossession, brutal forms of dehumanization have raised in the starkest terms possible the political and moral dilemmas of human difference and personhood. As we know in the uh, heyday of uh, colonial conquest and occupation, humanism was a racially exclusive ideology predicated on the belief that uh, a difference of color was a difference of species. In relation to blacks uh, in the context of South Africa, since I'm speaking from, from this context, law played a very uh, crucial role uh, uh, in, these, uh, in this sense. One of its functions was uh, to buttress varying degrees of normalization of what uh, in essence and, and in structure was uh, a low intensity social war warfare. That lawfare and warfare uh, were intric intricately uh, entangled, to, to use a term uh, Sarah used in her last book. And colonial law, in that sense, uh, was used as a privileged device for turning uh, the natives not into citizens, but into racialized subjects, that is, an ethnically undifferentiated mass of the people, of people naturally doomed to uh, wretchedness and degradation, and whose potential humanity could only be retrieved through benevolent forms of, uh, of uh, civilizing violence, uh, to use that term. And this is why, in many instances, the struggle for de decolonization equated democracy with the effort to vindicate colonized people's humanity. The point I'm making is that if we do the archaeology of, of the term democracy, in this specific context, we clearly see that it was consubstantially linked to the question of the human. That it is impossible to interrogate the category of democracy without interrogating at the same time the category of the human because of uh, uh, the place, let's say, the, the role law played in, in uh, in uh, structuring the human in, in a way that constructed the other as a form of waste. So, uh, within uh, this, why indeed, uh, in, during the struggle for decolonization, uh, it, it was understood that for democracy to be experienced as a a proper event of freedom, uh, colonized people needed to draw complex portraits of uh, themselves as actors and 
of their own lives as worthy lives, all of this in a renewed vision of human time. Uh, that is what the gesture Fanon, for instance, uh, is making uh, in, uh, in most of his work. And within this new figure of human time, freedom acted as the door to a shared community. And such a community was envisaged as a community of life. It included everyone equally and was itself the product of a struggle. And in some instances, this struggle was waged militarily. But more often, it was also a struggle against the law or against a f the figure of a law that was almost entirely divorced from any possibility of justice. In South Africa in particular, the most memorable moments of the history of the struggle are not heroic deeds in the military arena. They are trials during which the sharp split between law and justice, which so much underpinned the use of the law under apartheid, and which the state tried so hard to mask, came to the fore in the most spectacular manner. From the treason trial to the Rivonia trial, the archives of the struggle are littered with memories of uh, arrests, uh, detentions, prosecutions, uh, imprisonment. Uh, the long way of the cross uh, between the court uh, and the prison. Why this centrality of the law and what kind of law? Well, because uh, until the last quarter of the 20th century, South Africa was the most modern embodiment of the racial state, and apartheid was a figure, a particular figure of the law of race. Historically, the law of race operates according to a triple logic. First is the logic of separation or dissociation, the attempt to define one's own identity uh, going hand in hand with the attempt to define one's enemy. That my identity is my enemy, if, 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 if you want. And separation from one's enemy is a condition sine qua non of self-preservation. Second, then, is the logic of self-preservation, separation, self-preservation. Since identity and enmity are interconnected, the politics of self-preservation necessarily takes the form of a demand to kill and eventually to be killed. Not being a moral act, self-preservation is a primordial act almost biological instinct may be worthy of individual self-sacrifice, but also any realm of norms. And this is what uh, I, I suggest made uh, uh, of apartheid a form devoid of content. The third logic of uh, the law of race uh, is that, of course, the law in, in that economy functions as a sacrificial device. Uh, so uh, liberation meant an upturning of a law that operated as a, uh, an instrument of sacrifice to a law that could operate as, I would say, a sacrament, but a sacrament of life. And uh, a reading 
of the South African Constitution indeed suggests that this is the shift that South Africa tried to, to, to do, to make. Now, let me move then to the second part of the presentation. Well, I would like to, to show how, in fact, the um, attempt at uh, salvaging the human on the one hand and democracy on the other uh, in the context of the South African experiment uh, has taken on a paradoxical resonance. It has uh, taken on uh, a paradoxical resonance for uh, a variety of, uh, of, of reasons. The first has to do with the fact that perhaps to a degree hardly achieved in the rest of the continent, the human has consistently taken on, in South African history, the form of waste. And I would like to suggest that today, this logic of waste is particularly dramatized by the dilemmas of unemployment and disposability, survival and subsistence, and the expansion in almost every arena of everyday life of spaces of vulnerability. Despite the emergence of a solid black middle class, a rising superfluous population is becoming a permanent fixture of the South African social landscape with little possibility of ever being exploited by capital. So the point yesterday was that we were exploited by capital. Today the point is to not even be able to be exploited. And that is, it seems to me, a fundamental shift in the logic of production of the human as, as waste. So, how to govern the poor has become one of the biggest moral uh, dilemmas facing the nascent democracy. Behind policy debates on welfare and service delivery, loom fundamental ethical choices uh, that will determine the nature of South African experiment democracy, questions of how to right historical wrongs, what is the relationship between personal or collective injury and larger problems of equality, and the urgency of these new moral dilemmas is such that for the democratic project to have any future at all, it should necessarily take the form of a conscious attempt to retrieve life and the human from a history of waste. Meanwhile, on the other side, wealth and property have acquired a new salience in public debate. They have become the central idioms 
to framing and naming ongoing social struggles. There's not one single day, uh, for those who follow public discussions in South Africa, when questions of wealth and property are not uh, the subject of controversies. Central idioms, therefore, to framing or naming ongoing social struggles from imagining the relationship between the good life to redefining value itself, from claims of citizenship to the definition of the norms or the forms of property, whether the economy has to be nationalized or not, which is a big discussion going on, uh, from matters of morality to those of lifestyle and accountability, why is it that overnight some people become excessively rich without any apparent reason why this is the case? So the centrality of uh, wealth in the moral discourse concerning the human is, is not new. Uh, in fact, in various parts of pre-colonial Africa, discourses on the human or on humanity almost always took the shape and content of discourses about wealth, about personhood, and traditional definitions of, of wealth usually encompassed people, things, and knowledge. People, that is, other human beings, were not only the most important unit of measurement of ultimate value, they also formed the material basis or infrastructure of human life. And people consisted of interpersonal dependence of all kinds. And in fact, as uh, anthropologist Jane Geyer argues, uh, they were people, they were sought, they were valued, and at times they could be paid for at uh, considerable expense in material terms. Could go on and on on. Uh, conceptions of wealth in pre-colonial Africa, uh, what I, I'm trying to say is that uh, some of these old tropes might still be at work in current controversies on wealth and property. Uh, in any case, that should not be uh, excluded. The um, questions of wealth and property uh, in relation to democracy uh, are taking uh, the form uh, uh, they are taking uh, precisely because the other side of wealth, which is poverty, uh, as I have explained in the earlier part of uh, this presentation, uh, are inseparable uh, uh, each from uh, the other. So in order to reanimate the idea of the human in contemporary South African politics and culture, there's no escape from the need to reflect on the thoroughly political and historical character of wealth and property, and the extent to which the fate of democracy uh, has come to be linked with bodily life. And if uh, what distinguishes the South African experiment from other such experiments elsewhere in the world is the attempt to establish a new relationship between law and life, while equating democracy uh, and the political itself uh, with the ethical and the just, then we have to ask under what conditions can this project of human mutuality 
result in a broader or more ethical commensality. Now, democracy and commensality and the act of uh, eating at the same table, sharing the right to a fair share, which was inscribed in uh, uh, the, the Freedom Charter, can become the foundations for a new political renewed vision of what democracy has to be uh, in the kind of context I'm describing. So this right to a fair share uh, would supplement uh, the, the, uh, the traditional rights associated with uh, freedom. Another major challenge to any reimagination of the human in contemporary conditions is race. There's just no way in which one can uh, build an argument on South Africa yesterday as today in the exclusion of, of race. And here, fact is that the country's entire modern history is spliced around and fractured by the question of the relationship between its parts. I'm trying now to, to, to reframe the question of race as a, a question of relationship between, uh, let's say, uh, the country's parts, whether they should exist alone, separately, a separate development, or whether they should exist with other parts together. And it seems to me that this dialectic between with and without, us and them, our history and their history, of course it was played out dramatically during the years of apartheid, but it is being played out again in no less dramatic fashion between those with and those without property. And the end of apartheid has not resolved the old question of difference, it has simply shifted the terms of the difference and of the dispute. In order to make decisions about issues of distribution and sharing in such a way that the social body does not turn against itself, the new democracy must find an adequate language of, of claims and liabilities or debts, a proper language to keep putting forth the demand for justice the history of the place, uh, the history of the place places before us. And that uh, demand for justice is something entirely different from uh, matters of efficiency in terms of service delivery. Now, let me uh, move to the end. In the history of South Africa, one could extend it to other parts of the continent, the human has always been another name for the future. The future has been, in fact, the term by which the struggle to produce a meaningful life has been named. And what gave the category of the future its power was the hope that we might bring into being as a concrete social possibility 
a radically different temporal experience. That uh, the hope that a systemic transformation in the logic of our social life might happen as a result of historical praxis. That conception of the future has receded in the public imagination. It tends to be replaced, at least in the minds of many, by a turn to an everyday politics of expediency rather than a demanding disciplined politics of principle. So the question of uh, reimagining the future as a, a powerful political category uh, is, uh, of course, uh, on the table. Let me end uh, this set of remarks by uh, reiterating the fact that the period after apartheid is a period of reconstruction and redesign. The challenge ahead is nothing less than the refoundation of democracy as a community of life. The end of apartheid, just as decolonization in other parts of Africa, has opened the door to internal partition. It has not entirely resolved the question of difference. Yet the need to experiment with new forms of ethical relations has never been as acute as now. And the question this country is therefore facing today, as yesterday, is under what condition can South Africa reimagine democracy, not only as a form of human mutuality and freedom, but also as a community of life. In order to confront the ghost in the life of so many, the concepts of the human or of humanism inherited from the West will not suffice. We will have to take seriously the anthropological embeddedness of such terms in long histories of the human as waste. Thank you.